Section 6 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 2, Part 3. On the 18th of August, 1676, the Duchess of York gave birth to a second daughter at St. James's Palace, five minutes before eight in the morning, who was baptized by Dr. John North, Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and Prebendary of Westminster, by the name of Isabella, after Isabella of Savoy, Duchess of Modena, the great-grandmother of Mary Beatrice, a lady greatly distinguished for her virtues and piety. The godmothers of the royal infant were the Duchess of Monmouth and the Countess of Peterborough. Her godfather was the Earl of Denby. She lived to be five years old. The Duchess of York was in hourly expectation of her third confinement, when the marriage of her stepdaughter, the Princess Mary, with the Prince of Orange, took place, November 4, 1677. She was present in the bedchamber of the Princess in St. James's Palace, when those nuptials, so fatal to the fortunes of herself, her husband, and her descendants, were solemnized. King Charles, who was very facetious on this occasion, bade the Bishop of London, make haste with the ceremony, lest his sister should be delivered of a son in the meantime, and so spoil the marriage. Three days afterwards, the boy, whom his majesty had thus merrily anticipated, was born. Dr. Lake makes the following notice of this event in his manuscript diary. On Wednesday, 7th, at nine in the evening, the duchess was safely delivered of a prince, to the great joy of the whole court, except the Clarendon party, the child is but little, but sprightly, and likely to live. The newborn prince was christened the next evening with great pomp by Dr. Crewe, Bishop of Durham. King Charles acted as sponsor for his infant nephew on this occasion, assisted by his nephew, the Prince of Orange. The little princess Isabella was the godmother. Being only fifteen months old herself, she was represented by her governess, the Lady Frances Villiers. King Charles bestowed his own name on his nephew, and created him Duke of Cambridge, an ominous title which had successively been borne by three of the Duke of York's sons, by his first duchess, who had all died in infancy. The smallpox broke out in St. James's Palace, three days after the christening of the prince. The princess Anne fell sick of it, and a great mortality took place among the members of her royal highness's household. Among the rest, the lady governess of the royal children, Lady Frances Villiers, died on the 23rd of November. The young Duchess of York, however, showed so little fear of the infection, either for herself or her infant son, that on the 3rd of December, she received a visit from her stepdaughter, Anne, in her lying-in chamber, the first time that princess was permitted to leave her room. That visit, in all probability, brought the infection to the little prince, for an eruption, which was doubtless an indication of the same malady, appeared on his body and under his arm, and this being ignorantly repelled by his nurses, caused his death in a convulsive fit on the 12th of December. This day, notes Dr. Lake, between 11 and 12 o'clock, Charles, Duke of Cambridge, died at St. James's, not without suspicion of being ill-managed by Mrs. Chambers, who pretended to recover him. When he was opened, all his vital parts were found in a sound and healthy state, so that, in all appearance, he might have lived many years, 
had not mrs chambers and mrs manning the dry nurse struck in the humour which appeared instead of putting on a coal leaf to draw it out the whole court testified great concern at this event and the duke was never known to grieve so much at the death of any of his other children the remains of this lamented babe were privately interred the day after his decease in the evening in westminster abbey and like those of his sister the princess catherine were deposited in the vault of mary queen of scots the demise of the first-born son of the duke and duchess of york was announced with formal ceremony to all the sovereigns of europe by the british ambassadors resident at their respective courts letters of condolence were sent in return and there is some reason to believe that a court mourning was worn for him waller's graceful little poem on the death of the infant duke of cambridge commences with an allusion to the immature age of the royal mother to which he with great probability attributes the early deaths of her offspring and from the same circumstance insinuates consoling expectations for the future the failing blossoms which a young plant bears engage our hopes for the succeeding years heaven as a first fruit claim that lovely boy the next shall live to be the nation's joy how deeply the duke of york felt his bereavement may be perceived from the unaffected expression of parental anguish with which he alludes to it in his reply to a letter of condolence the prince of orange had addressed to him on the event which inasmuch as it replaced his newly wedded consort in her former position of prospective heiress to england was doubtless a matter of rejoicing to himself james however had the charity to give his son-in-law credit for sincerity he says i will not defer letting you know i do easily believe the trouble you had for the loss of my son i wish you may never have the like cause of trouble nor know what it is to lose a son i shall now say no more to you because this bearer can inform you of all things here as also that you shall always find me as kind as you can desire this letter is superscribed for my son the prince of orange william was plotting against his unfortunate father-in-law at this very period as the secret correspondence of the times will prove the death of the infant hope of england soon ceased to trouble any one save the sorrowing parents by whom his loss was long and deeply mourned while mary beatrice continued in a feverish agitated state her nerves weakened both from recent childbirth and the grief which preyed upon her in consequence of the loss of her boy which had been preceded by several deaths in st james's palace she was one night terrified with a frightful vision connected with the decease of the governess of the princesses lady frances villiers the particulars of which are thus related by dr lake in his diary this day i heard an account of a dream which the duchess had and which greatly discomposed her namely that whilst she lay in bed the lady frances villiers appeared to her and told her that she was damned and was in the flames of hell whereto she answered how can this be i cannot believe it to which the lady replied madam to convince you feel my hand which seemed so extremely hot that it was impossible for the duchess to endure it whereat she awoke much affrighted and told the dream to several of her visitants the earl of suffolk and other of the deceased lady's relations seemed much concerned at the duchess for relating it and indeed it occasioned a deal of discourse both in the town and the city 
at a period when the probability of supernatural appearances was generally believed we may imagine the sensation which the circulation of so awful a tale excited among the noble kindred of the deceased lady governess and the bitter feelings of indignation which would be kindled in their hearts against her royal highness for mentioning a circumstance calculated to impress the superstitious with the notion that her ladyship's soul was in a state of perdition the imprudence of the duchess of york in relating such a dream was the greater because she was of a different religion from the defunct the only apology that can be offered for such folly is comprised in the unfortunate propensity of this princess for telling everything that occupied her mind and the weak state of her health and spirits at this juncture the incident itself is curious from its similarity to several stories of comparatively modern date which assumed to be founded on family traditions it is scarcely possible that their authors could have had access to a strictly private document like dr lake's journal and it is certain that the dream of the duchess of york was never before in print the tangible proof which to her inexpressible horror the princess fancied the spirit of the departed lady frances villiers gave her of its woeful condition is in singular coincidence with the dialogue which the sister of lord tyrone has recorded that she held with the apparition of her brother and the thrilling touch which branded her arm with the mark of his burning fingers every one is familiar with the lines of scott in another version of the same story the baron of smallholm where the spectre says to the lady in reply to an anxious question as to the state of his soul this awful sign receive he laid his left hand on an oaken plank his right on the lady's arm the lady shrank and fainting sank for the touch was fiery warm the most marvellous gossips of the court of the second charles did not however go the length of asserting that the fair arm of her royal highness bore the slightest marks the next morning of the scorching fingers of the ghostly visitant who had presented herself to her slumbering unrest in the visions of the night if lady frances villiers had been permitted to revisit the glimpses of the moon it would have been more reasonable for her to have appeared to her own good-for-nothing daughter elizabeth to warn her of the sinfulness of her conduct with the newly wedded prince of orange than to have needlessly affrighted the innocent duchess of york in the midst of her affliction for the premature death of her son the following brief letter of ceremony appears by the date to have been written by mary of modena during the ephemeral existence of that little prince though she does not mention him it is one of the few that has been preserved of those penned by her when duchess of york the duchess of york to king louis the fourteenth london fifth of december sixteen seventy seven sir i am infinitely obliged to your majesty for the extraordinary marks of kindness i have received on your part from m Corton, your ambassador i leave it to him to express to you the grateful sense i have of it and i have also prayed him to assure your majesty of the profound respect with which i am sir your majesty's very affectionate sister cousin and servant marie a curious contemporary portrait of mary beatrice supposed to be a lady represents her decorated with an orange scarf this she probably wore in compliment to the marriage of her royal stepdaughter with the prince of orange mary beatrice always kept up a friendly correspondence with both before mary of york had been married many months reports that she was sick and sorrowful reaching the british court 
the duchess of york determined to pay her an incognito visit accompanied by the princess anne under the protection of the queen's lord chamberlain the earl of ossory who was the husband of a dutch lady when her royal highness had arranged her little plans she confided her wish to king charles and obtained his permission to undertake the journey the duke of york who was painfully anxious about his beloved daughter gratefully acceded to his consort's desire of visiting her and in a familiar letter to his son the prince of orange he announces to him that the duchess and the princess anne intend coming to the hague very incognito having sent robert white on before to hire a house for them as near the palace of his daughter as possible and that they would take lord ossory for their governor the ostentatious manner in which the duchess wished to make her visit to her stepdaughter the princess of orange proves that it was simply for the satisfaction of seeing her and giving her the comfort of her sister's society unrestrained by any of the formal and fatiguing ceremonials which royal etiquette would have imposed upon all parties if she had appeared in her own character considering the extreme youth of the three ladies the affectionate terms on which they had always lived together and the conjugal infelicity of the lately wedded princess of orange at that time her sickness and dejection it is more than probable that mary beatrice undertook this expedition with the princess anne in consequence of some private communication from the pining invalid expressive of her anxious desire to see them and confide to them some of the trials which weighed so heavily on her heart in that uncongenial land of strangers sir william temple the british resident to whom the duke of york had written to explain the desire of the duchess to waive the public recognition of her rank in his daughter's court on this occasion says in reply may it please your royal highness i received yesterday morning by mr white the honour of a letter from your highness with a command which it will be very difficult to perform here i mean that of helping her highness to be incognito in this place the prince being yet absent and the pensioner too i spoke of it to monsieur van lewen who was hard to be persuaded that the honours due to her highness by the states upon such occasion should not be performed solemnly at her landing but having acquainted him with the absoluteness of your highness's commands both by your letter and particularly by mr white i prevailed with him to make no mention of it to the states till the prince's return and this i hope may be to-night or to-morrow at farthest for a house to receive her highness and lady anne with their attendance there was no choice at all in it and so the prince's dowager's house is making ready for this purpose and will i doubt not be in order by to-morrow i could not persuade sir gabriel silvis and mr white to allow me any other part in this care besides leaving the whole house empty which i did early this morning and they white and silvius with the prince's servants in all the diligence that could be of preparing it for her highness's reception temple pleasantly adds that these the worthy dutch officials who were thus actively exerting their national propensity to household purifications in cleansing and trimming up the old court as the dowager palace of the hague was called for the accommodation of the fair and illustrious travellers from england would besides the honour of such a piece of gallantry have very great satisfaction in seeing there such a princess as in all kinds continues his excellency i do believe is very hard to be seen anywhere else 
he dismisses the subject with a wish that the weather were but as fair as the wind and then the adventure might be very soon and very happily achieved this letter is dated october eleventh new style being the first of that month according to the computation in england mary beatrice and the princess anne arrived at the hague almost as soon as it was written their visit appears to have put the whole of the british embassy to the rout for temple rites to lawrence hyde her highness's coming removed both your family and mine at a very short warning and i got into the next house i could find she was so resolved upon the incognito here and in that design so afraid of an ambassador that my part was chiefly not to trouble her or interrupt that design the visit was a flying one temple in the same letter which is dated october twenty fifth says the duchess went away on monday morning with very fair weather and a reasonable good wind but i doubt may have had but a loitering passage as it has proved since the duchess and the princess anne had evidently enjoyed their expedition and gave a very favorable report of their entertainment to james who expresses his acknowledgments to william for the hospitality they had received in these friendly terms london october eighteenth sixteen seventy eight we came hither on wednesday from new market and the same night presently after eleven the duchess my wife arrived here so satisfied with her journey and with you as i never saw anybody and i must give you a thousand thanks from her and from myself for her kind usage by you i shall say more on this subject but i am very ill at compliments and you care not for them the letter contains also some confidential observations on the plot which had been concocted by his enemies with the assistance of oates tong and their confederates for the ruin of himself the queen and other persons of their unpopular creed when the duchess of york returned from her visit to the hague she found her lord vainly attempting to grapple with the storm which had been mysteriously conjured up by his subtle foes in the course of a few weeks the public mind became so greatly agitated against james that he was compelled to give up his seat at the council board and the next demand of the triumphant faction was that he should be excluded from the presence of his royal brother his friends advised him timid counsellors as they were to retire to the continent with his family but his proud spirit revolted from a proceeding that might be construed into guilt or cowardice the king urged him to baffle the machinations of his enemies by returning to the communion of the church of england and to afford him a plausible excuse for doing so sending the archbishop of canterbury and other prelates to argue with him on the grounds of his secession james whatever might be his defects as a theologian was too honest to sacrifice his principles to his interest his grandfather henry the fourth of france had made no scruple of giving up his protestantism to conciliate the majority of his subjects facetiously observing that the kingdom of france was worth a mass james would rather have lost a world than dissembled an opinion or acted in violation of his conscience he was not like his ease-loving brother charles the second the supple reed that bent in accordance with the changes of the wind and rose again unbroken but the proud and stubborn oak which would not bend before the coming storm though it should uproot him the king thinking to purchase peace for himself by his brother's absence urged him to go abroad before the meeting of parliament james replied 
that he would only do so in obedience to his majesty's written commands or it would be pretended that he had fled on account of some misdemeanor charles conveyed the order for his absence in the form of an affectionate letter concluding with these words you may easily believe with what trouble i write this to you there being nothing i am more sensible of than the constant kindness you have ever had for me and i hope you are so just to me as to be assured that no absence or anything else can ever change me from being truly and kindly yours c r james requested to be permitted to take his beloved daughter the princess anne which was at first readily granted by the king but a day or two before that fixed for their departure his majesty was compelled to rescind that permission so great was the jealousy entertained by the people lest her father should attempt to shake her attachment to the church of england the duchess who to use his own touching expression was to bear a part in all his traverses and misfortunes resolved to share his exile although that determination involved a separation from her only surviving infant for even the solace of the little princess isabella's company was denied to her parents and this was a severe trial to both mary beatrice was accustomed to say that the first five years she spent in england were the happiest of her whole life they embraced the halcyon period between fifteen and twenty and were as regarded her own position years of festive splendor and great popularity but they were saddened by the loss of children and embittered by the infidelities of a husband who was the first last and only object of her affection the next five years were destined to be years of adversity to her and the duke she always said that she considered their mutual misfortunes commenced with their banishment to flanders which she called their first exile the troubles of the duke of york began much earlier and may be dated from the year sixteen seventy two the late king my husband says mary beatrice in the days of her widowhood to the abbess and nuns of chalot was a great admiral of england when he was the duke of york and when he used to return in triumph after his victories over the dutch the people adored him he understood both naval affairs and commerce all his study was to promote the happiness of the people by relieving them from the burden of taxes and at that time he was passionately beloved by all the maritime classes james himself occasionally averts more in sorrow than in anger to the change in popular opinion which took place in consequence of the change in his religious opinions before that time the duke was the darling of the nation for having so often and so freely ventured his life for the honor and interest of the king and country and for having been always active and industrious in carrying on everything either as to trade or navigation that might tend to their advantage but no sooner was the alarm given of his having turned papist than all these merits were blotted out from their memory and he was set upon on every side as the common enemy the letter from king charles enjoining his brother's absence from england was written on the twenty eighth of february their royal highnesses being compelled to make hasty preparations for their voyage were ready to embark on the third of march king charles came on that day to bid them farewell they were greatly afflicted at leaving their country and their children but the king appeared like one overwhelmed with grief the weather was very stormy and his majesty who had perhaps some misgivings seemed then as anxious to delay the moment of parting as he had been before to urge it the wind is contrary said he to james 
you cannot go on board at present and his eyes suffused with tears mary beatrice who considered that her husband had been sacrificed to the crooked policy of his royal brother's cabinet and that charles himself had acted with a selfish disregard of everything but his own ease exclaimed reproachfully what sir are you grieved you who send us into exile of course we must go since you have ordained it she afterwards blamed herself for this resentful burst of feeling i was wrong she said to speak to his majesty as i did it was no fault of his he was placed in a cruel strait and was compelled to yield to the clamours of our enemies on the fourth of march the duke and duchess bade a sorrowful farewell to england and embarked for holland they must have had a long and stormy passage for they did not land till the twelfth the prince of orange came to meet them attended by many persons of rank and conducted them to the hague with every demonstration of respect when they arrived there the prince drew out all his guard to the number of three thousand before his father-in-law and when the duke passed them the prince placed himself at the head of his guards du corps and saluted him with his sword in his hand and as they filed off he marched at their head repeating the same courtesy though the duke endeavoured to prevent it the states-general upon notice of their royal highness's arrival desired to have rendered them those public honours which were due to their high rank but james excused it desiring to remain incognito after a little while their royal highnesses removed to brussels where they occupied the same house where charles the second had resided before his restoration scarcely were they settled in their new abode when the reports of the dangerous illness of his daughter the princess of orange induced the duke whose affection for her was very great to go and visit her at the hague on the twenty fifth of april he writes to his brother-in-law lawrence hyde from that place i am to go to-morrow morning to amsterdam and shall be back here on friday and next week i go to my house at brussels and take buddha in my way james rejoined his duchess at brussels the first week of may soon after his departure from england lady shaftesbury's butler gave information to the select committee who like the venetian council of ten had possessed themselves of a power in the state far more oppressive than regal despotism that the duke of york was coming back in june at the head of sixty thousand men furnished by the king of france to assist the catholics the banished duke meantime was exerting his care and foresight in endeavouring to prevail on those who had the direction of the naval defences of england to guard the coast from the threatening armaments of france in a letter dated may the sixth sixteen seventy nine in reply to two addressed to him by the duke of york the faithful pepys says i do with equal shame and grief observe how much your highness's solicitude even at this distance for the security of this kingdom against the power of france does exceed all that we ourselves have yet expressed upon that subject otherwise than by a general but inactive restlessness under our apprehension of danger but without any alteration made since your royal highness's departure in the state of our ships or coasts other than what is consequential to their having lain so long neglected after mentioning that his majesty had among his other great changes put the admiralty into the hands of commissioners who were by no means acquainted with naval affairs he continues for what concerns my own particular your highness was pleased to foretell me at your going hence what i was soon after to look for 
and it is come to pass for whether i will or no a papist i must be because favoured by your royal highness and found endeavouring on all fitting occasions to express in the best manner i can the duty and gratitude due to your highness from me but how injuriously soever some would make these just endeavours of mine towards your highness inconsistent with protestancy neither they nor any ill usage i can receive from them shall by the grace of god make me any more quit the one than i suspect your royal highness will ever take offence at my perseverance in the other pepys then states the desire of the faction who had been the means of driving his royal highness into exile of depriving him of the post of secretary to the admiralty after his twenty years hard service to the loss of health and almost of eyesight james wrote a frank and manly letter in reply enclosing an earnest recommendation for this old and faithful servant of the nation to the king telling him that he hoped his majesty would grant his request i am sure says he he ought and it will do more good to reward one old servant than to take off twenty mutineers the duke's letter found honest pepys a prisoner in the tower upon no less charges than those of popery felony piracy and treason his attachment to his royal friend and benefactor having drawn this persecution upon him as he himself assures the duke in conclusion he says i pray god protect you and her royal highness these prospects were anything but cheering the bill of exclusion had been read twice in the house and only prevented from passing by the king suddenly proroguing the parliament on which occasion shaftesbury who was the president of the privy council had declared aloud that whoever had advised the king to that measure should pay for that presumption with their heads in july the duchess of modena came from italy to brussels to visit her daughter and mary beatrice after a separation of upwards of five years enjoyed the happiness of embracing her beloved mother once more their separation from their children was so painful to the duke and duchess of york that on the eighth of august james wrote an urgent letter to the king his brother entreating him to permit them to join him and the duchess at brussels charles consented and the two princesses anne and the infant isabella commenced their journey together on the nineteenth of the same month before the reunited family had been together many days the earl of sunderland sent an express to james to apprise him of the alarming illness of the king who had commanded him to request his royal highness to hasten to him in as private a manner as he could bringing no more persons than were absolutely necessary and therefore advised him to leave the duchess behind even if this caution had not been given mary beatrice could not with any propriety have left the two princesses alone in a foreign country james acquainted no one but her with his journey and taking with him only lord peterborough colonel legg and his favourite churchill and a barber he set out from brussels on the eighth of september the first night he arrived at armentiers the next at calais but the wind being contrary he could not sail till the evening of the tenth when disguising himself in a black periwig he crossed in a french shallop to dover where no one recognised him except the postmaster who was an honest man and held his tongue he took post from thence leaving my lord peterborough behind who was unable to travel so fast and arrived the same night in london there he got into a hackney coach and went first to mr frand the postmaster to learn the news where he found to his great satisfaction the king was much better 
he slept at sir alan apsley's house in st james's square where he sent for his brother-in-law hyde and sydney godolphin they told him his coming was quite a secret perfectly unsuspected by the duke of monmouth and his gang and advised him to make all the haste he could to windsor before it got abroad very little time did james devote to sleep that night after a journey which without railroad facilities of volition was performed at railroad speed for he reached windsor at seven o'clock the next morning september twelfth having as before mentioned left brussels only on the eighth the king was so much recovered that he was up and shaving when the royal exile entered unannounced and was the first to apprise him of his arrival the suddenness of the thing surprised charles at first james who had received a private message telling him he must take the whole responsibility of his return on himself as the king was fearful of acknowledging that he had sent for him knelt and begged his majesty to pardon him for coming before he was recalled this scene being over the courtiers flocked about the duke to pay their compliments his enemies as well as his friends for his presence always commanded respect even from those who were the worst affected to him the loyal and virtuous among the gentlemen then at windsor were sincerely glad to see the lawful heir of the crown once more by the sovereign's side evelyn for one mentions with some complacency that when he came to windsor to congratulate the king on his recovery he saw the duke of york and kissed his hand the king is said to have exclaimed in his first transport at seeing the face of that fraternal friend once more that nothing should part them again the voice of nature was however speedily stifled and the only real concession james obtained was permission to transfer his abode from brussels to scotland james left london september twenty fifth and rejoined his anxious consort at brussels october first the duke of villa hermosa in whose territories they had taken refuge had paid mary beatrice and the princess anne courteous attention in the absence of his royal highness and given a grand ball out of compliment to them which they with the duchess of modena honoured with their presence the friendly relations which had subsisted between the duchess of york and her stepdaughters had not been interrupted by anything like envy jealousy or disputes on their respective modes of faith the leaven of party had not then infused its bitter spirit into the home circle of the unfortunate james to rend asunder the holiest ties of nature under the sacred name of religion both he and his consort had carefully abstained from interfering with the conscience of the princess anne as we find from the following testimony of one of her biographers who had very good opportunities of information at brussels the princess anne had her own chaplain allowed her and a place assigned for the exercise of her devotions according to the church of england nor was she at all importune to go or ever went to mass with her father as i have been assured by her protestant servants who attended her there but the family lived in perfect harmony as if there had been no manner of religious difference between them which seems strange if his royal highness the duke of york was that zealous bigoted prince as he is represented to have been for where could he have had greater opportunities of prevailing with his daughter to have come over to the church of rome than in a country where that religion is established the duke and duchess of york left brussels on the third of october accompanied by the princesses anne and isabella and the duchess of modena with the intention of visiting the prince and princess of orange on the way 
they had a tedious voyage and their yacht with the whole of the royal party on board grounded near dort and remained aground for eighteen hours but at seven the next morning arrived safely at delft haven there they entered the prince of orange's barge which was towed along by horses and in this manner they reached the hague at three o'clock in the afternoon of the sixth william of orange assigned the dowager palace called the old court for their residence and treated them with much respect on the evening of the seventh the duke and duchess of york the princess anne and the duchess of modena supped in public with the prince and princess of orange while they were taking this meal mr carleton arrived with an express from king charles to his brother the duke of york recalling him and his family directing them to embark for the downs and remain there till further orders the duke and duchess were better pleased with this mandate than their wily son-in-law william as it appears by his remarks to sydney mary beatrice and her lord commenced their joyful preparations for their homeward voyage on the eighth the duchess of modena felt severely the approaching separation from her beloved daughter with whom she had now spent two months and when they all appeared for the last time at the court of the princess of orange that evening her countenance bore testimony to the sorrow that filled her heart the duke and duchess of york with the princesses anne and isabella and their retinue commenced their journey at eight o'clock on the morning of the ninth the prince and princess of orange accompanied them as far as maislin sloughs and there they parted on apparently affectionate terms this was the last time james and his daughter mary ever saw each other he had had too much reason at different times to be aware of her husband's treacherous intrigues against him but of her nothing could induce him to believe ill till the fact was forced upon him nine years afterwards by her deeds such was the state of party excitement in england and to so low an ebb was the power of the crown reduced that though the king had promised his brother that he and his family should revisit london it was necessary to keep this arrangement secret and to feel the public pulse by the previous announcement of the intended change to scotland which appears in the gazette newmarket october seventh his royal highness having represented to his majesty that he conceives it in many respects more proper for him to be in his majesty's dominions than in those of another prince and made it his humble request to his majesty to have his leave to go into scotland his majesty hath granted it and it is presumed that in a short time his highness will proceed thither the passage from holland proved very stormy and the duchess suffered excessively from sea-sickness the king had changed his mind about their coming to london and ordered the duke of lauderdale to make arrangements for their reception in scotland two frigates met them in the downs with orders to convey their royal highnesses to leith without delay the duchess was not in a state to hazard a farther voyage neither dared the duke bring her on shore without having a written permission from the king ill as she was she remained in the yacht tossing in the downs while an express was sent to acquaint his majesty with her distress and praying that she might be allowed to finish her journey to scotland by land her dangerous condition for she was vomiting blood prevented any one from raising an objection and least of all king charles who had a great regard for his sister-in-law they landed at deal and travelling post arrived unexpectedly at st james's palace on sunday night october twelfth to the surprise of some the joy of others and the annoyance of many 
the king gave them an affectionate welcome but assured his brother that he had no power to protect him from an impeachment and its consequences if he persisted in remaining in england the duchess of monmouth was one of the great ladies who came to pay her compliments to mary beatrice by whom she was very affectionately received when monmouth heard this he was so angry with his wife that he would not see her he affected to be personally jealous of the duke his uncle about a week after their royal highness's arrival sunderland and hyde came to acquaint the duke that his majesty thought it desirable that he should go to scotland though not to stay longer than the middle of january following however irksome this mandate was to james he replied that his majesty's will was ever a law to him mary beatrice though greatly urged by king charles to remain with the two princesses anne and isabella at st james's palace determined as before to share the wayward fortunes of her wandering lord though it involved the pangs of a second separation from her child her high sense of conjugal duty proved as before victorious over the strong impulses of maternal affection how deeply this proof of the love and self-devotion of his beautiful young consort was appreciated by the banished prince may be perceived in the manner in which he has recorded her conduct on this occasion in his private journal the passage shall be given in his own words the duchess notwithstanding her late illness and vomiting blood at sea the short time it was designed the duke should stay in scotland and the king pressing her for that reason to remain at court would nevertheless accompany him and though she was not above twenty years old chose rather even with the hazard of her life to be a constant companion of the duke her husband's misfortunes and hardships than to enjoy her ease in any part of the world without him but it was a sensible trouble to his royal highness to see the duchess thus obliged to undergo a sort of martyrdom for her affection to him and he to humour the peevish and timorous dispositions of some counsellors to be sent a sort of vagabond upon the world End of section six.